0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We have a very special show for you today as we are celebrating our first anniversary as a podcast. Dan and I are very proud to have kept this show going and over a very tumultuous year in politics and foreign policy. To make it even more special, we will be interviewing Senator Rand Paul in the next segment, talking about Ukraine, Russia, the Middle East, war powers, NATO, and more. But first, let's talk a little bit about crashing the war party in the last 12 months. Dan, I was looking back at all of our shows and guests, and wow, um, I'm pretty proud. Uh, We've had everyone from Scott Horton, who was our first guest, to Ron Paul, Hina Shamsi, Mary Dujak, Doug McGregor, Brad Palumbo, Kevin Gastola, Eli Clifton, so many more people dedicated to speaking truth to power in the national security and foreign policy space, And the issues have been so salient, you know, from the transfer of power from Trump to Biden, the nuclear deal with Iran, China and Taiwan. And of course, the run up to the Russian invasion, which we did several shows on that. And what we're seeing now is actual war in Ukraine. And we've been doing coverage of that uh, pretty consistently since so I'm feeling a bit proud, but over a little overwhelmed. There's just so much to talk about. And I feel like the blob has just gotten more emboldened over the last few months. Um, so how are you feeling, Dan, uh, on our first birthday today? And 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 how are you sort of like, you know, what themes are you pulling out from all of the shows that that we've done in the last year?
1: Well, thanks, Kelly. Well, I want to say first of all, thank you for uh helping me to to do this show and uh You've been sure. indispensable in, in putting it together and, and uh, doing the write-ups for our site. And so I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with what we've been able to accomplish. I think we, we put together uh, an incredible body of uh, work in terms of the interviews that we've done. We've talked to a, a wide range of people uh, from across the spectrum, from from all kinds of different backgrounds. We've had, uh, of course, we've had people who have been in military service. We've had scholars, activists, journalists, uh, and, uh, and you know many of whom we're lucky to consider colleagues and and friends. And so it's been uh, a great privilege to be able to to talk to all these people and to to learn from them, uh, and uh, and to bounce ideas off of. And so it's been uh, it's been a, a terrific experience. Um, and, and I think well one of the the themes that we've I think we keep coming back to on this show again and again is uh, holding uh, the government and people in government accountable for what they do uh, in our name uh, and, and, and trying to uh, shine a light on the things that they don't want people to be noticing and be paying attention to. And so I've been uh, very pleased with the, the attention we've been able to bring to uh, the effects of sanctions policies on uh, civilian populations around the world. Uh, especially in Yemen, uh, Afghanistan, Venezuela, Iran, uh, and uh, and also to to hold uh, the Biden administration accountable for failing to honor the promises that it made uh, during the campaign and and over time uh, in the in the last year, uh, where we've seen them uh, backtracking on their promises on Yemen, we've seen them taking forever to reenter the nuclear deal, which may still not happen. Uh, and and we've seen, uh, I think, a, a really a disappointing settling into a, a sort of continuity with a lot of terrible Trump-era policies, uh, many of which people in the Biden administration had previously criticized. And and so, it's important that people keep pointing out that they've they've failed to reverse a lot of those policies, and uh, and that they they need to start making that change in in the coming year. Uh, if they want to distinguish themselves from uh, the failures of their predecessors,
0: yeah, and I and I'd like to point out that our um, our show, I guess, has its origins in the empire has no clothes, which you and I did with Matt Purple, who did join us for this show uh, for at least one segment uh, back at the American Conservative Magazine, and I think I'm what I'm mostly proud of. And I think this this came naturally to us is the transpartisan nature of our show and that we are not representing any political party or ideology and that we aren't promoting uh, specifically Republican or Democratic foreign policy. And so when you do have a transfer of power from a pretty acerbic, uh, bombastic Trump presidency, uh, that had its own uh, very serious brushes uh, with potential war, like after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, we nearly went to war with Iran. Um, to you know, the withdrawal or the start, beginning of withdrawal with um, uh, from Afghanistan, um, and and we had a seamless transition here at the show from that to the Biden administration. I feel like we've been uh, very good at covering those issues for, on their merits, whether it be the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which turned, as we know, pretty uh, bloody and messy. Um, but we continued uh, to advocate and, and bring people on the show who could break down why we needed uh, to follow through with the agreement with the Taliban and get out of that war for 20 years uh, through the, um, the tensions, the rising tensions uh, with Vladimir Putin over NATO expansion, uh, leading to what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, and everything in between that I'm probably forgetting. Um, but I, I think that's important, and I think that's why our audience, we have an audience that is growing, and they're drawn to us. They're they're loyal. I hear a lot of good things offline, because in a time when there is so much partisan division out there. The polarization is just unbelievably acute right now. It's nice to go and listen to a podcast uh, for foreign policy, national security, civil liberties, all of the issues that those entail and not feel like you're being spoon fed some partisan uh, agenda. And I think we've been really good about that. But I, I have to say, it, it it comes naturally to me, and I think it comes naturally to you, Dan. You're not a uh, you're not a political animal. You have as much skepticism about Washington and the political process and, and politicians as I do. And um, I can't see you or I speaking for any of for e- for any politician. Uh, we might have um, some on the on the show from time to time, but we certainly aren't. Trying to
1: back any horse. <laughs> no, that's right. And I, and I think uh, on on foreign policy issues, you you can't really take a, a consistently partisan approach to any of these things because inevitably, uh, as we know, when a party takes control, uh, especially the executive, uh, that members of that party are going to reflexively defend whatever the president does, and so it's it's essential in those cases uh, to have independent critics who aren't going to, to simply fall in line because their team happens to be in control at the moment. Uh, and and I think we, we saw under Trump just how dangerous that can be when people felt compelled to, to fall in line behind uh, some ter- truly terrible decisions that he made uh, pulling out of the nuclear deal, uh, the, the assassination of Soleimani uh, being another one uh, and, and, essentially treating every foreign policy issue as a, as a loyalty test or as a litmus test of, of your, your fealty to a, a person or to a, a party. Uh, and and that, that always leads to, to poor uh, policy outcomes and it leads to, I think, really a discrediting of the people that fall into that pattern. Uh, because then when it comes time for them to, to speak up against a president from the other party, uh, they don't have the credibility uh, to to challenge a president when he launches an illegal attack or when he breaks an agreement uh, that has been working in the national interest. Uh, because when their side was in power, they were only too happy to cheer it on. And so that yeah, that, that independence is is really critical. Uh, not not just for for our own purposes, but I think to have that in the public sphere uh, to be uh, advocates for for sound policy regardless of who it benefits
0: yeah and I'm looking at the the list of, of guests we've had and and I'd be mistaken if I didn't you know mention that Barbara Bolin had joined us for several of our earlier podcasts and uh, was a, a great addition to the show but I'm looking at all of uh, these guests and I'm, I you know and it's we have had some fantastic regional experts on Iran, on Eastern Europe. Um, we've had um, some influencers. We've had, you know, folks like Sarah Lee Whits- Whitson, you know, who was able to jump in right after Biden made uh, that that speech about democracies versus autocracies, you know, earlier uh, in March uh, at, you know, around the time of the, the Putin night. I don't know if it was right before the invasion or right after it was in, maybe it might have been that twilight period after Putin had declared uh, those breakaway republics uh, as independent. And you know, and she was able to jump in and say, listen, you know, if this is about democracies and autocracies, what the heck are we doing in the Middle East, you know, supporting, you know, a bone saw, a Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And so we've had, you know, people who are just out there and they're not always given a, a mainstream platform. And that's what I always hope to do with the show is that to find people who are the smartest kids on the block when it comes to their particular field of expertise whether it be china or the middle east or iran or um, national security politics here in the united states um, or veterans who have a obviously a unique perspective on fighting wars and and long wars and and bringing them on the show and giving them a platform that they might not have because the mainstream media is so dedicated uh, to perpetuating the, the orthodoxies and the dominant narrative of the blob and have marginalized a lot of these voices. And I think we've been pretty good about that. I guess the, the biggest, it's not a surprise to me, but might be for our, our listeners is you're gonna find the best analysis on some of these issues out there today. And you'll find out how much you're getting cheated by going to MSNBC or Fox News or NPR or the Washington Post, thinking, thinking you're getting the lowdown about what's going on in, in Ukraine and, and how the Biden administration is is um, you know moving on these different policies, when you realize you're just getting the 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 uh, the soft veneer of uh, of an issue. You really to get down in the weeds, you really got to go outside of um, the mainstream hive. I'm so excited to introduce senator rand paul to our one-year anniversary show today senator paul has been representing the great state of kentucky since 2011 and sits on the very important senate foreign relations committee he has been a staunch defender of the constitution congressional war power civil liberties and u.s restraint and foreign policy for as long as i've been covering him he's been one of the most effective conservative critics of u.s regime change wars The infringement of the national security state on Americans' constitutional rights, and the military-industrial complex. He's made many lonely, principled stands, having Democratic establishment and hawks in his own party squarely against him. When people talk about consistent members of Congress who stick to their convictions and don't bend to the political will, Senator Paul's name always comes up, and we are so thrilled to have him on the show today. So welcome to Crashing the War Party.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable because I get attacked from the left and the right. Yeah, And uh, so I I tend to draw a lot of flack. It seems to come easily, but I think the issues are important enough that uh, we should give a full airing and really think about what causes war, what can end war, what can prevent war.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's not an easy position to be in, um, though it's principled. You know, to have both left and right coming after you. Um, but you know, you really find out who your friends are um, when you take these different stands. And it's not always what you think. Um, I want to ask you first about Ukraine. I know you had this exchange with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken during his testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Tuesday. You confronted him about what appears to have been the administration ignoring Putin's stated red line on NATO expansion before the war. Uh, Do you think the administration was doing its best to cool things down before the invasion or worse, do you think that they were agitating Putin by dangling NATO membership in front of Ukraine the entire time?
2: Well I will admit that the conversation was easier before you know Putin invaded. Before Putin invaded Ukraine, it was easier to have discussions about expansion or what we should do with NATO. Now it's much more difficult. And in the context of Putin's invasion and aggression, um, you know I began my questioning and tried to begin my questioning by saying, you know there is no justification for, for Putin's war in Ukraine. That doesn't mean there's not an explanation. And even though I gave that uh, provisional introduction, still the reactionaries on the left and right went crazy saying, you're spouting Putin's point, you're not a patriot, you're disloyal to everything good in in the world. But the thing is, is it's an important discussion. And many of the points I made were from a recent uh, op-ed by John Mearsheimer that was in The Economist. And he's by no wing, no no means a right wing uh, radical Republican. I would say he comes from the left. But he made some important points that really if you want to see the beginnings of the current conflict, it goes back to George W. Bush pushing and pushing and agitating that Georgia and Ukraine be in NATO. And the point I made to Blinken is that's 14 years ago and they're still not NATO. So it didn't look like they were imminently going to be part of NATO. France and Germany before the invasion were pretty strong, uh, strongly opposed to having them in NATO. And it only takes one country to prevent a new country from coming into NATO. And so as I put that forward, you know, the, the point was, is that it didn't look like it was likely to happen. But then last fall, well, last September, Putin said it was a red line for him, that uh, them joining NATO was something that would lead in all likelihood to uh, to conflict, uh, to, fight, to violent conflict. And then in November, what does Blinken do? What does the Biden administration do? They signed an agreement with Ukraine where they cheerlead, and I consider it to be agitating, saying, hey... Putin, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put Ukraine into NATO. So it was an unnecessary provocation. The problem with having the debate now is I think Putin was in the wrong. By and There is no justification for what he's done. He should have. And actually, in retrospect, even from his perspective, he's gotten the opposite of everything he wanted. He's, he actually has unified NATO to a certain extent. He's got now Finland and Sweden wanting to be in NATO. He, he now has people... In many ways, his his argument, his position is, is worse. It was a terrible miscalculation on his part. But the thing is, is we could have done better. And so we see Ukraine ravaged now. We see the destruction of war. And somebody should at least think, well, wouldn't it be better if we had not had this war in Ukraine? Is there another, an alternative outcome that could have happened? And Zelensky, under siege and doing fairly well to battle back, has actually said publicly, well, you know, we might entertain being a neutral nation. It's like, well, you know, had that been entertained last fall, maybe Ukraine wouldn't be ravaged. The other side says, oh, you're, that's Chamberlain in 1938 if you agree to be a neutral nation. And so they make it impossible for diplomacy to happen. But I think there was an alternative and still may be an alternative because I don't think the war ends unconditionally in surrender. The war is going to be a messy, probably negotiated end. But one end might still be Zelensky saying, uh, you know, even to the invader that, you know, we've agreed, we've rethought this, and militarily we think it may not be the best to be in a military alliance against Russia.
0: Well, on that note, um, some say the increased aid that we are giving Ukraine is becoming a proxy war. Uh, You saw or heard Senator, I mean uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, had made some uh, remarks in Kiev. Uh, just earlier this week, talking about how we are aimed to weaken Russia, um, to end this this war by going after Russia completely, which indicates a new level of conflict in which we want to go beyond ending the violence in Ukraine, but really crushing Russia because we see Russia as an existential United States strategic threat which to me, that that speaks of a proxy war. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the continued aid, the increased aid, and whether you think we are in a proxy war with Russia right now?
2: From my perspective, as an elected representative of Kentucky and of the United States, I think my first duty is always to the Constitution and to determine what is in the national security interests of my country. Now That doesn't mean it might not align with other countries at times, but at my first Priority should be my country. The biggest problem we have in our country right now is a $30 trillion debt. Even military figures such as Admiral Mullen in the past have said national security, national debt is actually the biggest threat to our national security. So I'm not for giving away money or arms to anybody. Now, whether or not we sell them is a different a different question. I haven't been opposed to arms sales to Ukraine uh, to defend themselves. And uh, but I don't think they should be gifts. Now, there is always the question of how much, you know, or what kind of weapons, you know, obviously no one's saying we should give them nuclear weapons. Uh, No one's saying that we should give them, you know, our, you know, F-16s. But it is degrees, and are there things that we can and should give them or and can do it without escalating it? There is always the danger of escalation, and I think it needs to be discussed and hopefully prevented because there are possibility of accidental war spreading into Europe, you know, and I think people should at least entertain the possibility that if there were uh, a a direct involvement of uh, European troops or NATO into Ukraine, that there is a possibility that China could decide to become allied militarily and respond in this war on Russia's side. And uh, probably people before World War I didn't think there was any way there was going to be a World War One, you know, to be a massive world war. And people miscalculated what different alliances and people being brought in were. So we have to be aware of all that. But I guess my position has been not to oppose uh, arms to Ukraine, but to say that they should be purchased. The other reason they should be purchased is Ukraine does have a long history of kleptocracy, a long history of corruption. Now, everybody's gaga now over the Ukrainian government, but the history of the government hasn't been so good. And if you give people things and there's corruption, it's more likely to be theft. If they have to purchase them, I think they're more likely to be used more wisely.
1: Alexander, thank you for coming on, Uh, good morning. you were mentioning uh, Finland and Sweden seeking uh, NATO membership uh, in response to the Russian invasion. Uh, and Their application is expected later this year. Uh, do you support their entry into the alliance? And do you think that bringing them in uh, is in the, uh, the best interest of the United States?
2: You know, I guess my first response is to think that uh, if Putin thought that it was a bad idea for Sweden and Finland to be in NATO, he's sort of miscalculated of people in Sweden and Finland were forgetting in NATO a year ago, and now 65, 68% are forgetting in. So he's completely done, you know, we talk about the unintended consequences of our foreign policy, think of the unintended consequences of Putin's invasion. Number one, I think he has brought NATO together. I don't. I think he hasn't disrupted NATO. He's brought them further together, more unified. Germany, which was much more open to sort of good relations and trade and even pipelines with Russia, has now stepped up and is much more adamant that it's not going to happen because of the war. You now have Finland and Sweden. So I think that things have completely changed and that Putin has miscalculated and is going to get these unintended consequences. As far as with regards to the United States, putting Sweden or Finland in there doesn't do anything to enhance our national security. It makes it more likely that countries that touch Russia will uh, lead to provocation. Now, people can argue the other side. They will argue that once they're in NATO, uh, Putin won't dare touch them. That may be true, but I don't think it's a knowable truth. Does, Does NATO prevent or provoke, you know, and does it matter which countries? is Ukraine different than Finland and Sweden? Finland and Sweden aren't, and have never been part of the integral, either Russia or Soviet Union. Ukraine and Georgia have been. Um, So I think they are different entities, but even saying that was explosive to the left yesterday, or the day before, they they don't seem to understand that there might be a difference between the Baltic nations and Ukraine. There might be a difference between Finland and Sweden and Ukraine. Um, I would say that, uh, the better part of valor would not be rushing into anything because it also still could be a, a point of leverage in negotiations. So if the war comes to a stalemate and Putin says that he's, uh, you know, he's either going to retire or he, I think he's going to try to stay where he is in eastern Ukraine. If there gets to negotiations, one point of negotiation would be, well, what would you do if maybe we Finland and Sweden decide not to come into NATO? It could be actually some leverage towards uh, getting something else out of Putin in a peace negotiation. I think we're a long way from a peace negotiation, though, because the other unintended consequence of this is, had Putin not invaded, I think Crimea would always be probably part of, of, of Russia. I think it was not going to be part of Ukraine again. I don't think they were ever getting it back. I think the same with certain areas of the Donbass. But now that he's bombed the crap out of the country, killed thousands of civilians, killed thousands of soldiers, destroyed their infrastructure, I think it's actually now more likely that ultimately, not in the near future, but that ultimately uh, he will actually be forced to leave the Donbass and Crimea. Why do I say this? When you kill people's mothers and grandmothers and civilians, they don't forget about it. So I think 10 years from now, even if he's still occupying parts of the Donbass, there are going to be people with sniper rifles from 1,000 yards killing Russian soldiers. This is not going away. So he made a huge miscalculation. He thought this was going to be Crimea again, but it turns out this actually threatens his hold ultimately, not immediately, but ultimately it's going to threaten his hold on Crimea, Donbass. And if he gets that land bridge and occupies it, uh, I don't see this coming. Uh, He can I think he can hold it in the near term future. But I don't think that in the long term future, this will turn out to have been good for Putin. He's made himself a pariah. So, I mean, I think he he achieved pariah status. It used to be a little bit of sanctions. Now the whole world sanctions him. The whole world is in boycotting him. Everything he has done has backfired. And so I think for those of us who think we have we make miscalculations that lead to unintended consequences. in Our foreign policy also need to acknowledge other countries do, too. And so I think this Putin's miscalculation will lead to more unintended consequences for him that are bad for his country, that uh, maybe his people will will discover that.
1: Sure. And uh, turning to a, a different set of negotiations, the, those uh, also involving Russia and the United States uh, regarding the revival of the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, you said last month that U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA was a mistake. Uh, if the U.S. does return to the agreement, uh, which doesn't look terribly likely right now, but but if it does, uh, will you support uh, the new agreement?
2: Well, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. But I think that uh, my inclinations are that some agreement is better than no agreement. Now, everybody complains in all these meetings, Republicans most loudly, but even Democrats complain. Some of the leadership on Foreign Relations Committee complains and says, well, you know, we're getting less for less. You know, we're getting shorter breakout periods of time. We're getting less ability to stop this and that. It's like, well, yeah, because you left an agreement that had better stops and you're going to get less this time around. And uh, so I think it was a mistake to leave, uh, particularly since By all indications, there was compliance on Iran's side. And so I think if there is an agreement, it will be less for less, and it won't be as good. And um, but who do we have to blame? I mean, it was a terrible mistake to come out of there. I mean, what was the response to maximum sanctions and to us getting out of the agreement, them going from like whatever they were at 3% enrichment now to 60% enrichment and the other thing about this is many on my side or the Republican side clamor, for, oh, we'll just bomb it, or the Israelis will bomb it. No big deal. They'll just bomb it. But there is a technical aspect to this. As you enrich uh, uranium, you start out with large volumes of it at like 3%. It's a smaller volume at 20%. It's a smaller volume yet at 60%. And then when you get up in the 90% to, to bomb grade, it's, it's very small amounts that we're talking about. You can hide it in a million different places. It's not like you have to have, you know, a depot with tons and tons of uranium. It becomes small amounts and it becomes impossible really to militarily destroy that once they get to that level. And so negotiations has always, to my mind, been the only way to uh, uh, prevent them from having a nuclear weapon. And I think a military strike or more assassinations, all of the things that have been done militarily have caused them to react in a way to increase their enrichment. So I'm still for diplomacy, I'm for discussing an agreement and um, I'd like to look at it first, but I thought it was a terrible idea of all the Republicans to sign a letter in advance saying it was a terrible agreement, even though they hadn't seen it, because I felt like that was an indictment of even the process of diplomacy, which I think is is very foolish position.
1: Certainly. And uh, turning to Yemen, uh, there will be a new war powers challenge coming up in Congress. Uh, Do you think a new war powers challenge will succeed in pressuring the Biden administration to cut off all arms sales and support for Saudi Arabia and the UAE?
2: You know, I think they speak with forked tongue. Uh, Biden administration says human rights is important. Uh, And then, you know, when it comes to Egypt, they withhold you know, 100 billion out of 2.5 billion, 100 million out of 2.5 billion. So they withhold a small amount. With regard to the war in Yemen, they've continued to send arms to Saudi Arabia. On the positive side, I would say it's heartening that there has been a coalition that is actually not just a few of us, but we actually won. A majority of us did win to stop arms to Saudi Arabia. Now, Trump vetoed it. It'd be sort of interesting to see that happen under a Biden administration where we actually nixed an arms sale to Saudi Arabia or one of their allies involved in the Yemen war and to see what would happen with Trump, with Biden, if Biden would veto it also. The problem with getting there now is it was easier for me to get Democrat allies when it was Trump as president because of their inherent uh, dislike of Trump and the inherent partisanship. It's a little harder now, as I presented a couple of these, several of the Democrats that have been on uh, disapproval resolutions for arms sales no longer have been with me when it's been the Biden administration. And that's disappointing because look, I was a supporter of President Trump, but I also was willing to stand up against him on foreign policy issues where I disagreed with him. We need more Democrats that are willing to be um, equal opportunity critics of a Democrat president as well. And I don't necessarily see that coming. I hope it will. There still are strong critics of the Yemen war on the Democrat side, um, but they need to be strong enough to step up. They've been pretty good on Saudi Arabia, but I think the other allied Gulf nations that are helping to fight, we should stand up and block their arms sales as, as well. We will do another one uh, coming up. There's there's one that's under uh, review where we can have a privileged motion and that's for Bahrain arms sales that we will oppose in the next couple of weeks. Um, As far as the war powers, um, there may be something circulating in the House. I haven't seen anything circulating in the Senate, but I will obviously support uh, any effort to uh, try to limit the president from continuing any support of anybody who's involved with the Yemen war.
0: Well, thank you, Senator. I I, I think we've run out of time, even though I had about 17 more questions to ask you. Uh But I'm just thrilled. Yeah, we'll do it again. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.